Hey, Will. Hey, Gene. Good morning. It is the book-stabbiest morning we've had in a long time. <laughs> Get is. ready for Bookstabber. I'm Willow Payne, one of your two hosts. And I'm uh, Gene Ambaum. Hey. The yeah. other of the two hosts. <laughs> we're about to ruin this book that we're going to talk about. Highly recommend you read it first. It's very short. Our book for today is Elder Race by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Yes, be- as one of another installment in the Year of Sword and Sorcery. I realized last time we spoke, I had forgotten when the Year of Sword and Sorcery began. It, it apparently only began in March of 2023, and we are in but September for, for Gene and I. You, of course, are listening to this in the distant future of 2058 where the giant mutant bats are eating our eyeballs hey you keep trying to dump the year of sword and sorcery although i I haven't really wanted to tell you we're only halfway through it's not that i want to dump it it's just that it (laughs) so it feels very long we've read a lot of books so far (laughs) i I just wasn't like i forget that we don't record once a month like i I thought that (laughs) we've recorded a lot of podcasts you're hilarious i mean i mean given that we both read a lot of sword and sorcery uh novels and graphic novels uh this is not feeling Let me ask you, but well, let me ask you about that because it's not that like I do like reading sword and sorcery. In fact, in my spare time, I am currently reading uh, Patrick Rothfuss, uh, the King Killer books, which I'm enjoying greatly, and those are sword and sorcery. But I do feel a little bit for the podcast as though I could I could use a change of pace that. (laughs) <laughs> that reading fantasy for the podcast has become I never I never thought that I would say this I Willow Payne who is obsessed with fantasy what but uh, this doesn't this doesn't affect you this doesn't this isn't a problem you think well I mean uh, you know I, I think I think for me I think um, having to read a book is both good and bad uh, it leads me to finish things that I wouldn't otherwise have have read or finished or given a chance to uh Re- reading a book is dot 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 bad gene ambom well no 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 i mean i mean um, I, I, i've said this before <laughs> that oh this this is a book i wouldn't have finished but i'm glad i finished it or this is a book you know i wouldn't have finished and i don't know if i'm particularly glad i would fi- i would have finished it but it's not it's not a terrible book uh so yeah i, I don't know i I'm, I'm not uh i'm not hating the year of sword and sorcery although the negotiations on the titles are always interesting <laughs> and odd and i appreciate you yeah agreeing to this one uh without too much of a fuss since i'm going on vacation next month yes this was thankfully a shorter book you our dear listener probably should have no trouble finding a copy and reading it quickly in the time that it takes you to pause this episode and come back <laughs> if you don't want to be spoiled now is the time of spoilers let's talk about this book well, well can i ask you do, you do you just without any other comment do you think this is sword sorcery uh in its strictest definition no so it is science fantasy hmm. um hmm. which i'll say i'm actually a big fan of I, I see. I disagree. I, I disagree with that. I, I think this is totally sword and sorcery. But I, but I understand why you why you why we'd say that. So, <laughs> do you want to give the pitch for this book, or should I? I the pitch is pretty simple. We we follow Liness fourth daughter and her sidekick uh, Esha Freemark as they are approaching the Sorcerer's Tower for. Liness fourth daughter her grandmother was a was a queen who asked the the dangerous otherworldly sorcerer for help uh, against a great warlord and together they were victorious and now Liness must ask the sorcerer's help to uh, slay a demon that is befouling the land but little does she know that on the sorcerer's end he is anything but a sorcerer in fact he is an interplanetary anthropologist who just happens to live for a long time and have technological horns attached to his head. (laughs) 
he just sees these people as simple rubes who don't understand science or technology of any kind beyond, you know, thatch roof cottages. I don't know if he sees them as rubes, but they're not, they're post-technology is what he refers to them as. They're a post-technology society, right? Well, but he's constantly frustrated with being unable to explain basic things to them, right? Well, I, I think that's the pitch. N- n- now we're talking about the book. I, I think your pitch was sure. Good. Your, your three sentence. It's pitch a very, was good. it's a short it's a short pitch and it's a short book. So right, and so so she sees uh, his name is uh, Nurgoth. His name is Nur N Y R. Uh, she calls him mm-hmm. Nurgoth Elder. She sees him as the last of the ancient sorcerers on her planet, which is uh, which he refers to as Sophos Four. I don't think she ever has a name for it. Uh, she is the fourth daughter of a queen. Yeah, well, I just have to ask you, so how is this not science fantasy to you? Like, there are spaceships there. Like, he has he has a robot at one point. Like, I think there's I think there's two points of view because it alternates between Lanessa's point of view and Nur's point of view. And in the in the Nur point of view narrative, it's clearly sci- it's clearly like a hard science fiction novel, basically. Yeah. Right. And and in Lanessa's point of view, it's sword and sorcery, which I love. I, I love I love that. Right, contrast. but you can't. Um, that's actually an interesting thought experiment because I feel like from Lanessa's point of view, it isn't sword and sorcery. Like we, as people who live in the real world and can read books, have sword and sorcery. But to Lanessa, this is really happening, right? Like she doesn't have a concept of genre. Oh, correct, correct. It's her, it's her reality, but but everything is solved with swords. Heroes solve problems with swords, and there is this sorcerer that she has gone to for help. And and I think the thing the the book does brilliantly is it it shows even in a central chapter in the middle it like it blatantly shows this, but it refers to the way he's trying to express to her in her language what he is. And even though he's like I'm a scientist, all she hears is I'm a wizard. Because that's what the word essentially right. Means, the word right? scientist to these people just means wizard, magus, right? Uh, so, so he's ha- he's having a hard time making making the concepts of anthropology and trying to explain the civilization he comes from and trying to explain what his intentions are and what's going to happen. Like he like as he explains this to her, he's he's struggling to understand her as well, but not as much as she's struggling to underhand, understand him. Because as he expresses himself in her language, he's always like, I am a mighty sorcerer and I have done these deeds. And he doesn't mean to come across like that. It's it's quite it's quite brilliant the way this book works. And I've never seen a book do this thing before. So I really, I really, really enjoyed it for that. I mean, it's an otherworldly tower. She just sees it as a place of magic, right? I don't think she has a concept of space and physics and him being an anthropologist. She might understand scholar, but that doesn't seem to be really something in their society as well. Uh, the planet is, I mean, I mean, basically humanity thousands of years ago went out to the stars and then something happened on Earth and humanity didn't go to the stars for a thousand years. And now, and then Nurgoth's people sent people out to the stars again to see what had happened to the human diaspora. And he was there studying with a team and then everybody else went back to Earth because something was happening there and he hasn't been contacted for hundreds of years now right and he, he suspects he may be the last person alive from his civilization although he's not sure right so mm-hmm. he, he is very much alone with whatever is left of their technology there and he's been basically sleeping in stasis and he had feelings for this woman um Astress regent who was uh Lanessa's great great grandmother he actually mistakes her for her at the beginning of the book when Lanessa gets her courage up and goes and knocks on his door which nobody does um, and and calls on kind of the whatever the blood debt or whatever she calls it like she has to actually give a the, blood sample to to show that she's right. related to Asteris Regent 
and uh, the door opens for her and he basically wakes up and he doesn't seem to really know how long he's been asleep, but it's been hundreds of years or a hundred years or something. And he comes out and he's seven feet tall and he's gaunt and he's in these glittery robes and he's got these horns. And... Can, I, can I ask a question? Yeah. Why, why horns? Like I, I know the actual reason is because it makes him seem more fantastical from mm. the sword and sorcery angle but why in the science fiction half like why would <laughs> well why would they construct technological horns because he describes that there's a lot of like like instrumentation going like there are scientific there's... instruments and sensors stored in the horns that are on his forehead right there's sensors but that, that's a sensors. but that's a terrible design well have that's you ever have a you ever bad design have you ever read childhood's end no, I haven't. So it's it's kind of a reference to child, childhood's end, which I don't want to ruin for you, and I don't want to talk about very much. But it's to me, it was a reference to that in a certain sense, and wow. and I think it's also to make him appear kind of threatening, more threatening. Yeah, I that just, I I think it's a fun detail, but it also is one that I get kind of hung up on. Of like, well, that doesn't really add up. Well, it's never really but described. Like, like, we don't know what it looks like, right? I, I think if if you were if I were making the Mad Magazine parody of this book, I would like continue <laughs> to have him be like, I also have a seven foot long barbed tail, and I each of my fingers ends in a, a claw that is poisoned. But little do these rubes know that I wasn't imagining Tim Curry in Legend or anything. You know, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like that wasn't where I was at. But that would be awesome. Oh, are, like, you th- are you picturing like little nubbins? Something, just just something like off his head that we, we're calling a horn. It's not a hat, right? It's clearly built into his head. So, I think the part that bothers me is that he calls it a horn. I could, if he called it like an antenna and she perceived it as a horn, that I could understand, right? But yeah. he calls it a horn before anyone else does. He that he has horns, like those. Think, that's I, his word for it. No, no, no. I think I think you're wrong. She calls it a horn. I, I kind of wrote this stuff down because to see. I'm like gonna, I'm, I have to go check the book out of the library again on my phone, but I can <laughs> and will prove you wrong. Uh, no, the, you, you got to trust me on these. It's in the it's in the second part. It's it's when she sees him rise from the crypt where he's been sleeping to her. Listen, hey, uh, our audience listening to us right now, you you read this book, you mail in whether or not <laughs> Willow is correct that that Nergoth or whatever he because he calls himself like Nur Tech Ilim or something, right? Nur Ilim Tevich is his name. He's an anthropologist second class of the Earth Explorer Corps. You, you, you listeners, you decide whether or not I am correct in that he refers to his horn. Like he does call them horns. He doesn't. He, in fact, I don't think he ever calls them anything other than horns. <laughs> and it's it's worth saying that Esha Esha Freemark, uh, Lanessa's companion, is uh, green. <laughs> And can breathe underwater, apparently. Uh, her people were augmented kelp farmers originally, but they have continued to breed and evolve on the planet. Um, it's very it's very odd. It's a very odd book. <laughs> I missed I missed the detail that she was green. I think I, I half remember that she could breathe underwater, which I... But that does... Yeah, that is more... Color, it, but, like, I guess it feels like nothing comes of either of those things, right? Like, not, those don't matter at any point in the book, right? Well, it, matter, it matters because Esha is one of the only people who can go from kind of city to civi- city and civilization to civilization. And she's kind of an intelligence operative for Lanessa's mother's kingdom. What I in, mean in is that there's never a scene where she breathes underwater, right? <laughs> no, there isn't a scene, no. But but it explains yeah. kind of, it, there's, there's an explainer of, of why uh, her people 
have kind of more freedom because they can come and go from the water and they can't really be conquered like other people. So they're kind of, they kind of have a special status. I like that. It's just in, a little background. In detail. English, in English class, we call that Chekhov's gills. <laughs> like if you see gills, you have to, you have to see somebody breathe underwater by, by, by page yeah. 100. Is that it? I don't know. Well, nobody um, wants to read the Aquaman story where he just like hangs out in Nevada. Well, that's what he, that's what he does in most of those old, uh, Super Friends cartoons, though, right? But although, I guess if you see Aquaman, you know he's going to have that kind of those kind of circles coming from his head, and he's going to be riding his giant seahorse. Where did the giant yeah. seahorse come from? That's what I always want to know. Well, the the deep sea has lots of secrets. So Lynesse says to to Nur, she says, uh, "There's a there's a power in the Ordwood. Men say it's a demon. My mom won't do anything, and I'm calling on the compact. You need to come and help me." And his reaction is kind of like. Well, I'm not supposed to help you. I'm an anthropologist. I'm not supposed to be interfering at all. I have a lot of guilt over this. But if 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 this is old technology from the time when people first settled this planet, if it's old technology run amok, then I have some responsibility maybe to keep keep you guys safe from that technology. But otherwise, I I don't have a lot. So he kind of he kind of goes with her because like like the last time when he went with her grandmother, it was this guy this guy Ulmuth had uh, taken some old technology. And was using it to wreak havoc and he was like okay well i need to go help with that but he, he very clearly fell in love with her grandma and he's kind of a little in love with her because she looks so much like her her great grandma and there's a lot of moaning about being possibly being the last of his people um let me tell you what there's a lot of there's a lot of him describing how he's got some kind of cyborg subroutine that keeps him from just being like completely depressed all the time yes what is it called it's called the but dcs then, the dcs but it doesn't seem to work very well because he, like three times in this book he has to like shut it down and just be miserable and well it kind of it, it kind of spocks him right he just becomes spock for a bit he can totally dissociate from whatever emotions he's having but he, he, he spends seems... most of the book being spock yeah but then when he isn't being spock i guess you could argue he's spock during pon far or something except that's more aggressive <laughs> he's he's depressed spock he is depressed spock and it's not like he doesn't have things to be sad about, but I I feel as though th- this is a weird story where he has all of this technology and, you know, compared to everyone else on this planet, he's super futuristic, but he, he like, I understand that he is depressed. He says that in his own words, that he is a depressed person, and that's a, you know, a psychological condition, but um, feels like he could still find some way to have have a good time in this environment i don't know well i like i like that he's depressed and he, he at one point he tries to explain depression to Lynesse, but she can't understand it what he's saying right she thinks he's saying like there is a great beast that follows me night and day that right. could kill anyone even right. a great sorcerer and he's just he's just trying to put it because well but i also find that weird that i think like a medieval level civilization in terms of technology they still have emotions like i think they understand what it is to be profoundly sad i i guess but they but but they can't understand his like it seems like he's got he accrues some kind of body debt right as he's as he turns off his emotions and he has to deal with that or it will just overwhelm him despite the dcs which is the dissociative cognitive system despite it being engaged he can't leave it engaged forever which i like Right. I mean, this book would suck if he could just turn off his emotions. It's it's an odd thing to be able to do. But because because he's given emotions and he's so alone, you know, I, I really like that he can just kind of turn it off to deal with stuff. I don't know how else he would flow through the story here. It'd be, it'd be very different if he couldn't do that. 
I think that's it. I think your choice of language is interesting that this book would suck. I think this book does kind of suck. Oh, uh, you're crazy. You're crazy. No, this book is so good. Very little happens in it. It's just kind of it, it's it's a concept like it's it. I like the premise. I think it's a cute premise. I don't think it goes anywhere, you know, well, but 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 it, it's short and it has it has motion. A lot of it's about language, and he's really trying to understand what the demon is supposed to be. And I think by the time we get to the demon, like, like he doesn't know what she means by demon, and she keeps trying to explain to him, and he's just they set off to understand, and it kind of ends up being there being no better word for it than than a demon, right? I mean, it's very it's very strange, and that's that's yeah, a very I, science I fantasy. Moment. Understand what was happening at the end? Well, he seems to at some point figure it out, but he doesn't really tell us the audience, right? Well, he doesn't. He doesn't really know. He's he's an anthropologist, not a not a scientist, right? So he's he's well, kind of stuck. He figures out how to beat it, and it, he seems to have a a pretty good framework of what it is. Like he he has an explanation, but because we are not privy to knowing how the science of his world works, it's it's not. I just found it a little lacking. It's because you know, okay, we we encounter some people that are sort of infected by this weird thing they they have like a gross skin condition almost right some kind of burbling cthulhu-esque growth on their face right and and i'm interested in this you know he gets stabbed by one of these monsters uh esha gets infected but he's able to to save her very quickly he he is able to knit together his wound using you know nano machines or whatever so so they have it they have this encounter they they aren't destroyed by it, but they realize that it is dangerous. The The only clue they have to go on is that uh, Nier has some sort of telepathic communication with this thing, which I think by the end of the book we figure out it has something to do with a satellite, right? No, 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 no. So, so I mean, I mean, th- there's a couple of things. Like, like, the first dangerous encounter they have is with the kind of worker bee bot thing that flies at, at them and tries to... It tries to kill uh, Lines because it's trying to get to near. No, no, no. I, I, I know you weren't. But, but like, but like in the context that, like, like when that comes, that's like old technology that just run amok because it doesn't have anybody to command it anymore, right? Right. And and near knows exactly what it is. Right. And so he speaks to it in this way that looks like wizardry to everybody else. I mean, it's it's clearly like using the horns or whatever tech he has, and he's in communication with a satellite overhead. Like he he kind of saves uh, Esha and Lines. And looks like the wizard that they believe him to be, right? But he tries to explain, no, no, it's just a worker bee. You know, its masters are long dead. It just, it just sensed me, and so it came to me. It's not a big deal. It's going to be hanging around a little bit. It's like a, it was a mining robot. I think he told her. Let's see. He, he figures out that she's not there at his, at her mom's command, right? They go to like a Which city. Which he doesn't care that much about. It's not, it's right. not really a big deal to him, but it's kind of a big deal to her. Right. But, but like, like, like the, I would say the danger kind of builds. Like then he's attacked. He's attacked when he's sleeping in a city at night where he's been welcomed because of her status. And he stands out right. like crazy because he's seven feet tall and has horns and whatever. Uh, people are trying to cut his horns off. And his body like emits some kind of radiation that burns everybody. And, and they're trying to decide how to, how to punish these guys. And he's like, oh, they've been punished enough. You know, they've got radiation damage. Like, like nobody should go in this building for seven days. And when he explains that, Lines sees this as like a curse. Oh my God, he's said they are, they they shouldn't bear they will never bear children and nobody can like nobody can go into this room for seven days this is a you know he's right. he's crazy um <laughs> and then they see him being very sad which is a very odd moment and they put well, a blanket can on i him. can i talk about that issue a little bit because th- sure. this is sort of 
I don't want to say Adrian Tchaikovsky. I, I, I am a little bit curious to read a different Adrian Tchaikovsky book that isn't this, because I have heard other people tell me that he is a good author. I've heard Children of Time is fantastic. Yeah. But so this was a bit of writing that felt kind of, it was flawed. So the, the encounter at the inn is is very clever that, okay, we've, we've got this scenario where Mir can't help but, you know, have this, uh, this self-defense mechanism that is built into his sort of bodysuit. And then everyone else interprets this as grand witchery and, and a curse that, you know, you shall never bear children and, and this building is forbidden. And, and then, and so I like that part. The problem that I don't like is a time passes and they're on, you know, they're on the road trying to head towards this demon. Mm-hmm. And then Liness talks about it and sa- and just, just like, because we, we already, as the readers, I think we, we see the full picture, but then she has a conversation about it where she just repeats the thing that happened. And we already know that she interpreted it as wizardry. Right. But it, for some reason, we rehash it as if we didn't already know that she and she just says it flat out that was great wizardry that was true magic you did there and he repeats the thing of no it's not mad like so much of this book is them just having that same conversation over and over again right you know by the second time it happens we the audience we get it like we're not going to be the only thing that would be surprising at this point is if she suddenly started realizing oh the thing that i conceive of as magic is technology like it's not um premise of the book can't maintain being clever the whole way through at a certain point you like get on with it but but i don't think it does because because there's enough from each of their points of view to kind of carry that past you that's a very small bit of it like like making the miscommunication very clear i agree that it's kind of circular like you kind of go over the same ground twice but it's not it's not really very much of each of each alternating chapter to me Uh, i didn't think it was awful when he's um like when he finally breaks down when he turns the dcs off tells him he has to go look at the stars and he's uh just sobbing and crying and and he finds out later they saw him like he's he's kind of chastising himself and talking about how everything's gone wrong and his voice really changes when he turns the dcs off i i, I like that i like that and then uh she, I, ref- I she like reflects that on scene it a little bit fine yeah I, I mean i like that scene fine but then he turns his dcs off like two more times over the book and part of the thing that's frustrating about that is that once again it was enough for me to have seen that scene from Nier's point of view then to have Liness re-describe the same event again I found to be it was too much it was just it was overkill I I didn't need it and it I I can understand I can understand why you feel like that but it all builds up to that middle chapter where he's trying to explain 1500 years ago your ancestors came here from earth he's trying to explain to her what the real history is and then we can see what she's hearing at the same time it's like two columns right i, I but, don't know how i don't know how but, that worked in the audiobook or did you have the audiobook or did you do did you read an ebook uh, of this no i couldn't i couldn't find an audiobook so i i had to read this was in an ebook which okay. I'll, i don't particularly like ebooks um because i don't like reading on my phone i guess what i'm trying to say is that i you're saying that this built up to that middle chapter but i didn't like that middle chapter because oh. If I was 13 years old and someone handed me this book and this was the first instance I had ever read of, you know, the thing you call magic, I call science, that would have probably been cool. But because I'm 33 years old and uh, a <laughs> child of the world, no, this I've, I've seen this before. And so I found that chapter to be like, yeah, I already know this stuff. Like, of course, of course, you know, he's from Earth. Of Like, of course, they are the long descendants of a colony. I, I, I know what science fiction is. 
Well, but, but but it's not it's not his explanation because we already kind of know that story from having been in his point of view. It's 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 her interpretation of what he's saying that I really like. I don't know. I, I get what you're saying though. I mean, if you found that tedious, you found it tedious. I just thought it was I thought right. it was great. I thought it was fantastic. I I, I would happily give this book to a thirteen year old niece or <laughs> nephew. You know, I don't I don't say that I don't say that to be disparaging. I I actually would right. I yeah. and I care about my nibblings and I want to give them books that they will enjoy. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, I mean, well, after that, they're on their way to this place called Farbrand, where the demon is supposed to be. They take this guy Alworth exiled to them. There's, there's this kind of scene where uh, three people come forth and talk about the demon, and he's the one who talks about having seen it firsthand, about how it's slaved beasts and people to it, and it's taken over buildings, and there's cords growing from the earth, and uh, only he escaped. And um, Liness promises to destroy the thing, and Nura's like, "Why did you promise that? I'm a, I'm a goddamned uh, anthropologist, you know." And she, she just hears wizard. So it's 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 fun, but we're kind of past that at that point. Um, and, but but they find pieces of this thing, and it's like melded bo- melted bodies of rat creatures and people with like black pustules on their faces. And he's detecting like electromagnetic fluctuations from it, but they don't go anywhere. He, he says it's very odd, like like they're kind of emanating from it, but they're not going anywhere. They seem to be just going into the thing, into the things. Um, so there's some kind of body horror elements to it that I did. You like the body horror parts of it? they're kind of cthulhu-esque and weird and kind of like alien but i didn't find the descriptions to be super interesting for my like as someone who really likes body horror Mm -hmm. i i could have they were fine for what they were i understood that there was body horror happening but it wasn't grisly enough i suppose to provoke anything in me or to like get a reaction right 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 it's very nominal I would say they were downplayed like because because i don't love body horror and they were just enough for Mm -hmm. me like uh, and then he gets and then there's a person who's been taken over by this thing and this giant crab claw or something shoots out of it and goes into his gut and almost kills him. That's the second time that he mentions he's in contact with a satellite that's above the planet and basically if he dies to keep his technology from all the people, like this this uh, satellite will somehow destroy his body and all the oh, area around it, right? And that's how they defeat it at the end is they sort right. of get the satellite to blow it up. Well, he has he has no weapons. He's just trying to kind of outthink it. And twice that almost happens. I can't remember the, the first time. So I also feel like this is this is kind of an overall plot hole, right? Where, mm-hmm. well, the idea that this was a colony of Earth that at some point did have technology, right? It had these mining robots. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they, they forgot how it worked. Like this is, you know, we read Ringworld earlier this year. And this sure. is the same premise of Ringworld where... That was a hyper futuristic space station that, you know, everyone just forgot how their technology worked and now they become Neanderthals. Right. And so it's the same thing where they just they they have lost their access to this technology. Why? Why would there then be a satellite if this was a colony that had this technology? Why is this satellite set to destroy more technology that like there should already be technology on the planet? The mining robot is an example of this. Like this is a technology that it's not even malfunctioning exactly it's it's doing the thing that it was supposed to do it's just that now that people are sort of terrified of it well it just sounds like nears people have like the prime directive like don't interfere don't be an influence on these and he's he keeps breaking it right so 
but but right that's but this is what i don't understand is that Nier's people and this colony were were once the same people they weren't so far afield you know in and and also like how old are we supposed to believe that Nier is because he's older than everyone here like he lives for hundreds of years right yeah i think i think i think well i mean chronologically he's i mean i don't know how old his body is i don't think he's i don't think he's lived hundreds of years awake right he's clearly hundreds of years old sure by a calendar it, it's very hard to tell but he's very long-lived but it's it's possible for all we know that he was alive at the same time that this colony was established i i don't know that because the book doesn't no he does he, he, no he, you know he wasn't because he explains that like 1500 years ago these ships left earth and they came here and then something happened and we were out of contact for like a thousand years and then we got kind of space technology back and we sent out people to study what had happened right to try to not interfere but they weren't like cloaked or anything they weren't you know invisible to people they, they i mean his mountain his fortress his tower is clearly the spaceship they came in right or, or part of it at least and and they've been they, they were studying them and then they were called back because something was ha- calamitous was happening on earth and he stayed because they wanted somebody there still to, to still study the people and he just kind of sleeps more and more because he's sad right <laughs> and can't deal with the fact that maybe he's alone there's been no contact well this so. but this is part of what i don't get is that like i mean he had so, he he loved and i put that in quotes because i feel like the way he describes love he doesn't necessarily mean like romantic love but he had great affection for Lanessa's grandmother mm-hmm. he describes that as such being such a good time and so i feel as though it would have made perfect sense for him to just have have kept i i, I suppose the argument is then there would be no novel but <laughs> I, I feel like he would have, he should have just hung out with her for, you know, a lifetime or whatever. And he probably thinks. He clearly almost did and regrets not having done that, I think. Yeah. Right. And I think that regret is a nice background to this story because, because for him, it was yesterday, basically, right? I mean, not quite yesterday because he's woken up a few times since then to check and see if he's been contacted from Earth and to check the instruments and to like look at the society a little bit, but not much. It sounds like not, not very much at all, right? I guess in a way, the the thing about this book is that it is a lot like uh, an episode of original Star Trek, which I'm a fan of. <laughs> well, but I feel like in original Star Trek, it's perfect for this kind of thing of you get a you get a premise of a planet that's weird. Mm-hmm. You, you know, everyone looks at each other, goes, why is this planet weird? And then somebody explains why the planet is weird. They defeat the evil leader or they, you know, sure. they save the they save the people and they teach them how to use their tools again and then they leave and it's kind of a perfect like all right we 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 found a problem we figured out what the problem was we solved it and then we left and this book i feel like because it is a book and not a episode of star trek it overstays its welcome in that regard uh, yeah but I, I i don't i like i like the i like the way it develops i like her trying to explain the demon i like the slow realization that she's actually right that the demon she says the demon is something from outside it's not part of the world and it is that like right and he tries to explain that it's like it's from like underneath or below or something like something like under our reality where they, he didn't think there was anything or humanity's never thought there was anything and there's something there right something alive something kind of wretched trying to trying to not pull its way through but like communicate and it's it's warping the creatures in our world not because uh it's evil but because uh it's just doing what it does and it sees them as raw materials right like it's unclear to me what's what, what's happening right but what, what i really like about the end of the book if i'm just going to jump to the end when they get to this place is that they see this this amalgam of flesh and buildings and there's it's formed these giant cords and it's emanating this electromagnetic radiation that's going nowhere and which is a contradiction that i don't understand they see this and he doesn't know what to do and she's like well 
I'm going to go down there with my sword and I'm going to solve this problem. And he's like, no, 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 you can't do that. Like, that's like, you're going to die if you do that. And she's like, well, this is what we do. And this is what I'm going to do. And you have until morning to figure something else out if you want. And, and I love that they go down there into it. And I love that her sword is kind of the thing that solves the problem, but it's also him. Right. I mean, I, I like, I like the end of this book just fine. It, it all, it all pulled together for me. I don't know. I, I found it. I found it really compelling in that way. I can find, I think, things compelling that are 200 or so pages in length because they don't overstay their welcome to me. Like if this was a 400 page book that explored more of the society and more of the, I don't know, it it developed a relationship between them that was that was more instead of just leaving that off the page at the end of the book, I I would be so disappointed at it. But But I really, really like this length because I feel like short stories, if this was a really short story, it would leave, um... It would just be it would just be too short. There wouldn't be enough space to through action and, and language and, and interaction show me what's happening. It would need this big lump of, of exposition, which which this has, but I think it, I think the way the exposition in this book is done is is clever enough to work for me. Like like the disguise of, of the miscommunication is, is a great way to explain how things are are, are working and what has happened in the past. Um, and I just really, really like the end of this book. Well, I think it's a classic. Uh, you, you're a huge fan of the novella. <laughs> I, I don't. I well, I don't dislike novella, but I feel like the novellas that we read on this show are not. I, I'm trying to think of one that I really liked. They certainly aren't ones that I would have picked. Hmm. Well, uh, I, I challenge you to find a novella. I, I've got. A, I've got a few more, but yeah, I'll have to endeavor to, to find <laughs> that. The the perfect novella, the Willow Payne. 10 out of 10 novella. Well, I'm highly curious, or, or not even a novella, but just, I mean, you really liked uh, Sailor on the Seas of Fate, the second Elric book that we read together. And that that is, you know, if anything, well, a, yeah. a series of novellas to me. Short stories, yeah. Well, but I mean, they're 50 pages, right? I mean, I, I don't know what to define a novella as, but a short story is often shorter than that. I mean, that, that, that's an edge of a well, short think... story, but... Well, well, those are interesting because they were written as short stories, and and then when collected into a book, they had they they were adapted slightly to have some more connective tissue. So, in their, I think I would might have enjoyed them more in their original form of just unrelated mm. short stories, right? I, I think that some of that connective tissue makes the book a little silly that it just it just like because that doesn't feel like a beginning middle end adventure. It feels like a lot of random stuff that Elric did that, uh, like, I enjoyed things about it, sure. I enjoy the characters, and I enjoy the weird situations. I Like, if I were, if I had curated that series of stories, I probably would not have started with the with the one where the Eternal Champion fuses into an eight-armed monster. <laughs> like, th- like, no, literally, I would have probably put that one at the end, because that's sort of the most epic, right? Yeah, yeah. But... Clearly, Michael Moorcock had different ideas. Well, but I just think, I think like in the Elric example, I think the least interesting thing is the space between the stories. I agree. Because it's how he gets from one thing to the next. And who cares, right? Yeah. He's he's going. Mm -hmm. It's not a real explanation. It's just a ghostly ship with people on it. I don't don't care. I just want to see the adventure. But here in this book, in this book, even the journey kind of works hard to, to, to build toward the conclusion to me. Like that's the difference. I, I I just like the way this works so much better. Like this seems like the perfect length of a of a story to me. Yeah, I don't. Know. I mean, I, I mean, that, that, that's where I come down. But but I love that Elric book. I think as much as you do, which is which is paradoxical. But I like it for different reasons, right? Sure. I mean, I think you might like that book more than me. Like I I like Elric. Um, I like I like things about that book. But I also I don't know. I wouldn't put that like. 
Well, for me, it's it's nostalgia, right? I mean, it's it's, it's almost complete nostalgia. Oh, sure. that, that is probably the first sword and sorcery book I ever read as a kid, which is very strange to think about now. But um, well, it's interesting because I I sometimes you know I feel like I was born in the wrong decade. That's not you know that's only partially true. I I started listening to a Jethro Tull album last week, and <laughs> and well, I'm listen. I I have never listened to this album before. And I'm listening to it. And I'm just thinking, like, man, why, like, why couldn't, like, I, because I don't have anyone in my friend group or that that listens to this kind of music that is, you know, t- would today be considered very unfashionable. Mm-hmm. Um, not that, not that my friends are such great, um, you know, they're they're not going out to uh, Cardi B concerts or whatever. I just feel as though everything I like is from the past. And I'm sure if a psychologist was here, they would be like, well, you're trying to, you know, reach for a time you never had because it is comforting and it is safe and it is without peril. But I, <laughs> I think actually just a lot of that stuff just was actually better. Well, well, I, 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 well, I think there's a lot more to, I mean, like, especially between what, like uh, 1920, 1930 and now, like we still have access to most of the, the fiction i mean there's there's not not most of it but there's a lot of especially short fiction that's been handed down that's that's kind of classics right but there there's more from that period than we have access to from like the 100 years before that although books have come down to us from there as well right and and but the the stuff from like the 20s or 30s on feels so much closer to right now that it's like it's like this huge smorgasbord of things to choose from right i mean it doesn't i i, I don't feel weird about liking like uh the novels that i that i enjoy right i mean i'm, I'm often more surprised that yeah. i like something like this that was written more recently um as much as i do than than anything else although i guess i i guess i like quite a bit of the content i read anyway and i have no problem finding content so i had a heck of a time choosing my uh my vacation book i've only, I'm only gonna let myself take one book book with me and so uh i had a real hard time i think what i feel weird about is that in it like in my social circles uh not only am i not talking about the new thing but also there is this feeling of like oh there's silly old willow who listens to uh (laughs) irish railroad worker songs for fun and you know doesn't like the taste of beer what a what a weird cantankerous (laughs) person whose opinions seem to come completely out of the void with no rhyme or reason and i just i don't know i feel like i'm always defending myself that that because Hmm. to everyone else my my tastes are inconceivable well i i I think that i think that it's interesting to explore your tastes with you like through discussions like these because you're much more you're much more uh measured than i remember you being before we started doing the podcast (laughs) because you know we would have these talks and they would always end in your rants and i feel like you haven't had a good rant for a while against something but but it's often it's not it's not what you like that surprises me it's uh the things that you absolutely do not like in any way shape or form that that surprised me right Mm -hmm. um and I, i don't i don't think i don't think uh I don't think you're defending that, but it's it's really fun to hear you explain because you often have like a very detailed explanation for the things you don't like. Whereas for me, for me, I'm just like, yeah, I just don't like that. I don't I don't give a shit about about that book. So I like put it down after 10 pages. You know, it, it was uninteresting to me and I will never pick it up again. So I'm I'm sending it away, you know, in the used book bin or or in a box to somebody or, or whatever, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's not I'm, I mean, I'm shocked by the Jethro Tull thing right now. I'm, I'm still trying to digest that. 
<laughs> I will, but, so I will admit that I I try to put a lot of thought into why I like and don't like things because I think it's worth thinking about and it is significant in some regard. It's at least significant to me and the weird life I lead. Mm-hmm. But I also I'm starting to wonder if when we come up, and you know all of us, everyone, not just you and I, but when people in general. And, I, and I'm thinking about this because I think it applies to me. When we come up with reasons for why we don't like any given thing, like I don't like Star Wars Rogue One. I don't think it's a very good movie. What? I'm not sure that the reasons that I come up with are because like there is a real solid reason or if any reasons we come up with are just a story to explain the phenomenon of like well you just didn't like it but <laughs> but now we can come up invent a reason for it but i don't know that that reason is actually true that's interesting yeah yeah i totally understand what you mean yeah i mean i, I do that with music like i don't know why i hate the song but i do and here's here's why i think i hate this song but whatever like often it's just mm-hmm. that i haven't heard the song enough for it to to catch in my brain right i do think it's interesting like the the more simple you get like something like a movie can be very complicated like it's very easy to say why you don't like a piece of food right you could be like oh this this meal it's it's too soggy or i don't like the the taste of cilantro or it's wet uh, bread like, it tastes like wet bread <laughs> yeah why don't you just incense the entire podcast no, no, no. fan base against me why don't you just why don't so, you just no no no, no. Now? that was just a, that was a reference to a conversation we had before <laughs> which we which we do not need to speak of no, like no, the no. sword of damocles <laughs> say no more T- take that out take that out of the podcast <laughs> No, but 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 I agree because taste is like taste is like oh like I don't like the taste of that why would I eat it again right right but 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 I've pushed past that a lot of ways I'm like oh I got to get past my response to this food to really see what it's about and, and like like food is super easy to get past because you just keep putting it in your mouth right <laughs> you know what I mean mm-hmm. like it's not it's not a big deal and I've learned to do that but I don't I have never learned to do that with music or art that I find uncompelling. Um, I do it a little bit more with books, but I, 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 I absolutely do that the most with food because I find that the benefits of pushing through that with food are super great in my life. I think there are some, I think there's some interesting examples of that happening in media where as a kid, I absolutely despised Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And, but I think because I couldn't escape it, I had to, I had to kind of learn to love it a little bit. <laughs> I mean that though, like because yeah. it, it, in my lifetime it's been inescapable. Well, I still find those books kind of unreadable. I, I admire them for what they did and what they represent, but I've never been able to finish that trilogy. Like I, yeah, don't feel the need to apologize for that, right? It's just not to my taste. Um, but I certainly respect. Well, I, you realize you've picked an awful time to admit this because this is still the year of sword and sorcery, and we still got another six months to go. <laughs> I'm pretty open about the only I, I finished the first book in the trilogy and I finished uh, The Hobbit and that's that's it. And I will never try to read The Two Towers again. <laughs> Although it is my my favorite movie in the trilogy. So Oh really? Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's got that Empire Strikes Back quality that I love. It's it's perfect. It's got a perfect oh, ending. I love and, the ending. You and your Empire Strikes Back. I'm just going to take any movie and I'm just going to start editing in, you know, Cloud City. <laughs> What every movie needs is Billy Dee Williams. That, that's what I've decided. Uh, that would not be a bad idea. He's a great actor. I watched a, I watched a movie last week called Hit with an exclamation mark, which is from 1973. Mm-hmm. 
and it was it, it's like a really it's it's not a good movie billy d williams is playing a kind of liam neeson-esque uh i, I learned a word this week reading an article article uh, about liam neeson films dad exploitation so it's kind of a dad exploitation film he's trying to avenge his daughter's death from a drug overdose um He's a rogue government agent putting together a team that's going to go to Marseille, France and start assassinating the people at the heart of the drug trade there. Uh, so it's got the French connection kind of feel. But the weirdest thing about it is that, that it's mostly shot in Washington state. He puts together this this team that includes Richard Pryor in what I think must be a very early role for him, uh, where they didn't really know how to use him. Uh, but it's filmed on the Olympic Peninsula. <laughs> and they take off in this very small boat uh, and end up in France in a jump cut. <laughs> It's very, very odd, but, uh, but not, uh, not entirely unentertaining. But I was like, I was really like, oh, that's, I think, I think maybe, I think Billy Dee Williams was in Lady Sings the Blues. And, and I vaguely remember that, but I don't really have a memory of him before Empire Strikes Back. And I was just like, his presence was, was great. So I, I need to investigate more Billy Dee Williams films. I'm very excited about that. Well, <laughs> I think we've, uh, so that brings us to the end of talking about, Elder Race by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Ending on the Billy D. Williams note, exactly where I thought we would end up. Exactly. A book that is full of sword, sorcery, and Billy D. Williams. Yes. You know, I like to I like to cast actors in my mind when I'm reading a book. I didn't cast anyone in this book, I don't think. But uh, I, I think if you're going to reread it, or if you're going to read it for the first time, maybe maybe the elder Nirgoth should be Billy D. Williams. That would I make think, it more interesting. I, I think, think in his prime. I think like, yeah, Billy D. Williams, like 1975. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I could see it. What if you just cast every character in this book as Billy D. Williams, just to make it really wacky? No, he's not. He's not playing Liness's fourth daughter. Come on, that, that that's why bad. not? Who is Liness's fourth daughter, though? Hmm. I think Billy D. Williams is actually. I I, I read this some time ago, but he came out as um, gender fluid. Oh really? Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. I'm pretty sure. So good for Billy D. Williams. Digesting that. All right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, if you have a suggestion for what we should read next or, or a book that you would cast Billy Dee Williams in as the main character, uh, email us at bookstabberpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'll see you next time. Yes. Keep stabbing.